You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. Oh, that was pretty niftily done, seeing as you two are sharing a microphone. You yeah, must have bad. been you must have been nose to nose against the microphone when we did that. No, don't go there. Okay. Really don't go there? I'll no, leave it don't. I'll leave it for you two to go there. The stories aren't true. <laughs> we've got <laughs> again, we've got a bunch of emails because we didn't finish them all off from last week and we've had a bunch more since then. And you know some post podcasts don't read out the emails, but I like to. I think if people have taken the time to write to us, the least we can do is read them out. And besides, we never get bad emails. We only ever get good emails, good thoughtful emails. So yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, it's about a year ago. I think we asked for some bad ones, wasn't it? Because we thought we as you started feeling guilty about having nothing but good ones. Oh, I don't. When I say good ones, I don't mean complimentary ones. I mean thoughtful ones. Oh, okay. Yeah, ones we don't that get. Are, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, we don't get um, airhead ones, do we? No, we don't. We're very lucky in that respect. <laughs> um, actually, this one goes back a bit to a podcast we did, was it two or three weeks ago when we did one about the ninth Doctor? Mm. Uh, this is from Doc Whom. He says, Gentlemen, I think you risked falling into a circular argument at one stage when you suggested that the Empty Child and the Satan Pit two-parters could have worked as single-parters. While both stories may have included bits where nothing happened, things were only not happening if you take the 45-minute story as your standard. If you take the 4 times 22 minute story of Classic Who as your standard, then both Empty Child and Satan Pit are by comparison tightly written with very little hanging around. Yes, both contained a number of scenes which you would have ditched if trying to pare it down to 45 minutes, but that's very different from saying that there would have been better stories for that pruning. To take just the empty child, Rose hanging from a barrage balloon in the middle of an air raid contributes little to the plot, nor does the scene of the Doctor sitting around the dinner table with all the kids, nor does Rose and the Doctor trapped in a room discussing dancing, but wouldn't the story have been much less fun without them? The difference yeah. Yeah. The difference between the non-vital scenes in The Empty Child and the Satan Pit and the non-vital scenes in Classic Who, i.e. everything in Episode 3, is that the former are intelligently written character scenes which enrich the story, whereas the latter are just physical runaround scenes inserted for the sake of padding. While it may be true that both halves of The Empty Child ran five minutes short, to have squashed it all into a single episode would have ruined the effect and would have been left with a much different experience. Yes, the plot could have been run through in 45 minutes, but do we remember The Empty Child only for the neatness of the plot? Don't we remember and value it just as much for its character moments? Reducing it to a single episode would also have robbed us of the best cliffhanger resolution in 50 years. As I think I've said before, the Empty Child two-parter achieves what is very rare in classic or modern Who, the sense of an epic scale. An epic scale which you can't achieve simply by filling the screen with millions of CGI Daleks or with enormous CGI alien panoramas. (laughs) 
The Dalek Parliament may have given us a brief ooh of delight, but it was achieved by creating a circle of CGI Daleks and then replicating it in concentric circles ad infinitum. The ooh doesn't survive many rewatches. You achieve a genuinely epic scale by selecting a background of great situational scope, for example the Blitz, and then letting the story breathe enough to allow it to be filled with well-written character moments whose emotional impact matches the situation and which you can return to again and again. It then says, what exactly is your ideal here, gentlemen? Is the perfect episode for you the one which keeps you away from the internet or the pub for the shortest possible time? <laughs> Is the problem with the two-parter that it delays JR sending his review to Starburst for an extra 45 minutes, you cold-hearted robots? I see you now as a troop of Cybermen in a video editing suite in Cardiff, chanting, delete, 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 and then, when every last piece of harmless joy has been hammered Bidmead-style out of an episode, JR clenches his fists and booms, excellent! You might as well argue that one of my 27-paragraph emails to the Blue Box podcast could be pared down to a couple of short paragraphs, but think of all the rich content you'd lose. Yeah. And that's Doc Whom. Yeah. You know, he did email me afterwards and say, uh, now that I've sent that email, I'm a little embarrassed because I may have got the wrong end of the stick. No, I don't think so. I think he's it's, it's a very valid argument. And, oh, know. no, no, no. I, his argument's valid, but I don't think he's arguing against what we were saying, because I don't think mm. we were saying the stories would have been better if they'd have been single-parters, in as no. much as we were saying that the single-parters that are specifically written as single-parters seem to work better in general than the two-parters do. Yes. Yes, I agree. That was kind of our point. So, mm. But anyway, mm. yes. And I did... I did consider shortening that down to two paragraphs just to get him back for all those comments about me being a Cyberman at the end there, but I just didn't have the heart to do it. Best part? Well, I don't have a heart being a Cyberman and all that. <laughs> it is interesting, though. I mean, I, I think what I get from it, though, is that I, I'm still not quite sure why those particular stories became two-parters as opposed to other ones. Maybe it was to do with the grandeur of the stories. I mean, The Empty Child, I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, it allowed the stories to breathe, I will say. But did they gain that much from being two-parters? I don't know. Um, The character stuff, I don't think I'd... I think I agree with Steve, really. I don't think either, either of those two stories could have been any better as single-parters. Mm. Uh, when mm. you sit down to write something... If you're given a limit, 45 minutes, or two 45 minutes, you write to that limit. So, I, you know, I don't think any of the... You know, people are always saying this on forums and on Facebook and on Twitter. Oh, that story would have worked much better as a two-parter. Oh, that story would have worked much better as a single-parter. Mm. But it's not true. The story wouldn't work at all as a two-parter or a single-parter. The story works in the time it's been set to work in. It was written to work in that time. It's not that you could change it and it would work better because if you'd have been writing for a single part instead of two parts you'd have written a different story mm, mm. I mean if you don't think the story is particularly good that's got nothing to do with how long it is mm. I suppose I mean I mean, the two part stories are they literally when the writer's asked to, to, to write them um, are they told this is the two parter this is the one parter at, at the early stages are they thinking oh, yeah. from the off that it's absolutely. a two parter right? oh okay. yeah 
That's the I very first thing they're told. It's the equivalent of a writer being allowed to stretch out on a sofa, isn't it, I suppose? It's, it's like, right, okay, I've got two parts here. I'm going to stretch out and take my time with it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you hadn't been given that opportunity to stretch out like that, you'd have written a completely different story. Because you don't write the plot and then think, oh, must fill it with character stuff because I've got two parts. You start writing with the plot and the character and they dovetail between one another over the course of the two parts. It's not like you could... If you were, you know, if you were set a single part instead of two parts, you'd come at it with a completely different mindset. You'd write a different mm. plot. Mm. You know, you mm. may have the... You know, you may have the same bare bones. If Russell T. Davis had said to Stephen Moffat, right, I want World War Two, The Blitz, London, two parts. Or if he'd have said all that one part, Stephen Moffat would have still done a story set in The Blitz. But it would have been an entirely different story. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we ought to get to our subject, otherwise we're just going to blather on for hours. Mm. It's all Doc Hume's fault for writing such thought-provoking emails. If it had just <laughs> sent in a, you know, an email saying "You guys are bloody brilliant, I love you," and left it at that, well, you know what I'm saying. Mm. Our our listeners write good emails, and that can be a problem when it comes time to read them out. <laughs> Maybe they should write single-part emails instead of two-parters. Yes, yes. We should read out tweets. Yeah. Actually, most of the other emails we've got are quite short, except we got another one from Doc Hume as well, which is also quite long. But again, they're all worth it, all of them. But let's talk about tonight's subject. If I ask you what tonight's subject is, will you do a mark? Uh, what, what does Mark do again? Well, I say, and what are we going to be talking about tonight, Mark? And he'll say something that's so specific, it's not really quite the answer I had in mind. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> so, what are we going to be talking about tonight, Mr. Brett? Season, um, I've gone blank. But Leon. It's season three, isn't it? That's right. No, actually, well, <laughs> no, we've not done a Patrick Trout season yet, you know, guys. No, we haven't, actually. It's a bit tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there is one season we can do, so I reckon we should do that one. We've got to cover all the... Uh, we've got to cover one season from all of the Doctors before we get to the anniversary, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got to do a Patrick Troughton season in the next couple of months, so we've got to do season six, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. So what are we talking about tonight, Simon? We're talking about Colin Baker's first season. Season 22. That's the one. I couldn't remember the number. And what do you know? Patrick Troughton's in it. Yeah, hey. Yeah, so two birds with one stone. I like it. (laughs) Right, as per usual, what we did was we four... There's no Mark tonight, by the way. He's not feeling up to much, so no no Mark, sadly. But still, there's plenty to talk about, so... Uh, We voted for the stories in our order of preference, then I totted them all up, and we will be doing them in reverse order of how much we collectively like them. So, would either of you two guys like to take a wild stab in the dark guess at which story of season 22 we collectively voted our least favourite? Time Lash? Indeed it is. Really? How bloody obvious. <laughs> Do you know what, though? Only two <laughs> of the four of us actually voted it last. I know, yeah. And the yeah, only reason, yeah, the only reason it's kind of come in last is because almost all of the other stories were favoured by at least one of us so they picked up slightly more votes in that way 
Mm, but time lash. Hmm. Uh, well, you know what I like to do with these. I don't like to say, oh, it's rubbish. I like to say, what well, A, what the good things are, and B, maybe why it quite hasn't lived up to, because nobody ever sets out not to make a good story. Mm-hmm. The thing about Time Lash, I think the biggest problem with Time Lash is, this is going to sound ironic saying it out loud, it's a bit out of time. It is, well, there are two problems with it, and I'll come to the other one in, in a moment. But the script is such a sort of 1960s style Doctor Who script Mm. that given an 80s production, you know, when season 22 was on and we got to Time Lash, as it started, you know, for the first 10 minutes maybe, and, oh, I can't remember his name. Is it Stephen McIntosh in the first 10 minutes? The guy who was in uh, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels? oh right right well anyway an actor in there who went on to greater things and actually mm. i knew him already and i recognized him i thought oh this promise as well because i knew paul <laughs> darrow was in it too mm-hmm. but the thing is it kind of has 60s ideas and 60s dialogue and in those 80s sets it just doesn't kind of really work does it no i mean if you came if you look at a synopsis for time lash in theory, it could be quite a romp. Mm. There's a lot of nice ideas. The H.G. Wells uh, element. Oh, the yeah. Time, the time lash itself. The idea of people being thrown through this time lash and appearing in different times. The, um, I actually quite like the, the blue android, the way he looks. The time lash? What's that, if not the um, the idea that stuck in Stephen Moffat's mind and gave him the weeping angels? Yeah, yeah. Because that's basically what the time lash is doing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm. speaking of H.G. Uh, Wells, that is so... Oh, speaking of the Loch Ness Monster as well, the Loch Ness Monster in particular is so very Eric Sayward an idea. You know, Doctor Who being responsible for something from myth or history. Mm. It's a bit like uh, the Cybermen blowing up the dinosaurs or uh, putting Lane going up in flames because of the Pteroleptils. Mm. You know... Being responsible for the Loch Ness Monster is so very Eric Sayward an idea. Mm-hmm. And H.G. Wells, that's, you know, it is, I guess you could say it is a celebrity historical, and so it kind of ahead of its time in that respect. Mm. But by the same token, that also feels like a kind of Tom Baker thing, because Tom Baker was, uh, and John Pertwee as well, I think, were always. I think he's very Pertwee, this, mm. this story. Um, but the name the... dropping and they're actually yeah. having the historical figure turn up. But yeah, go on. Say what you were about to say. No, I was going to say the the part where you you realise that the Doctor's been there before, during his third incarnation, is another nice idea. And yeah, and it should be brilliant, but it just isn't. <laughs> of course, the first time that happened was in well, sort of happened was in the Rescue as well, which is sixties. It just. Mm, it's just something about the production that doesn't doesn't really allow it to stand up and it's not so well directed it's not just that the sets are cheap it is the cheap one of the season but there's Mm. always going to be a cheap one so it's not just that but there's something more to it Pennant Roberts he started out well with the face of evil back in 1977 
But as time goes on, his Doctor Who's become less and less impressive. He did Warriors of the Deep as well, of course. Oh, God. Right. And there's something here with Time Lash where the actors just don't seem to be on the same page as one another or <laughs> on the same page as the writer. I know uh, it's unbalanced by Paul Darrow's performance, but it's, but it's more than that. Mm-hmm. Lee, you're a, are you joining us? I thought I had Lee's voice in the background there. Paul Darrow, um, I thought, was the highlight for me because I've I've always liked him as Avon, as you well know. And uh, everything he's in, he plays himself. And when I saw him play Macbeth on stage once, he was exactly the same as Avon um, as well. So, you know, I, I, I don't care. I just love him. So that was a highlight for me. H.G. Wells was a low light. But um, but do you that think was ju- that was just the actor? I love the con- mm. the whole concept. In fact, the whole season has got vastly brilliant concepts, really filmic concepts, actually. But they just it didn't live up to it because of budget standards, script, that sort of thing, I suppose. But uh, no, I time lash is sad. Really, it could have been a lot, lot better. But a uh, lot to like as well. Well, that's interesting. Let's move on. You just said the whole season had sort of cinematic concepts. Well, the story we voted our fifth favourite is Attack of the Cybermen. Mm. That's probably a good example of that, is it not? I would, yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, there's something interesting about this. It's, it was that. Do you know what? I was watching it the other month, and I couldn't quite put my finger on why it reminded me of something else from Doctor Who and it was blindingly obvious really I watched The Mind of Evil the other week and it was that it just reminded me of that very much the kind of gritty the so-called gritty realism the Sweeney-esque type thing going on there and uh, it's weird because I think as a kid I I found that very dull all that kind of Sweeney stuff I wasn't into cop shows as a kid so um, it didn't really spin anything for me so when the Cybermen turned up it was great fun but yeah, no, I voted it a bit low. But cinematically, if you'd have stick that on the, the, if you gave that to somebody and they turned it to a great big fat film, it'd be quite fun, I think. I think, uh, you know, I think the gritty, for want of a better word, elements sit so badly with the rest of the story, especially when the cryons come in. You know, you can just about imagine these gangsters rubbing up against the Cybermen, but these gangsters rubbing up against the cryons. <laughs> it, it, I'm not whether you know Sarah Green's under or not. I'm not talking literally. I'm talking figuratively. <laughs> there, Barrett. Come on. But you so know what I'm under, saying. Even at the time, that undermined it. When when they started getting all these, uh, started getting a lot of the celebrities involved. You know, of the caliber of Faith Brown and Sarah Green, it, it did start to. It was the beginning of that. You'd probably say that it started a lot earlier than that, but it was the beginning of that, the variety thing, the undermining of the integrity of the of the series. Oh, I don't really think so. I think it depends on no. the performance. Mm. Doctor Who's always in had theory. good actors in it and often had well-known actors in it. It just depends on whether they give a good enough performance. But, I don't think there's any problem with Sarah Green and Faith Brown's performance as the Cryons. Because they were doing what the director asked them to do, and they did yeah. a very good job of doing what the director asked them to do. Mm. I think probably it would have been better if the director had asked them to do something else, yeah. and if the <laughs> costume designer had come up with a different idea for them. Mm. But you know mm. what I'm saying? On the one hand, you've got these gangsters in this very sort of 
gritty realistic type gangster drama and then you know in the same story and this is a story that's kind of split into two episodes that are worlds apart from one another in the same way that Stephen Moffat does it but in the same story as you've got these gangsters doing this heist as they think you've also got these creatures that can only exist in sub-freezing temperatures and look like a five-year-old's bad nightmare of what an angel's supposed to look like or something. It's just too bizarre for words, and it doesn't they, fit. They do look like something that's come out of the underwater menace. They, they really do, do, very mm. much. And then you've got the plot, which, and I, and I know this is famously the one where it's too much continuity. Well, continuity can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. Depends on you know, how you use it, but it becomes so convoluted here because he's trying to write a sequel to The Tenth Planet and The Tomb of the Cybermen and The Invasion all Mm. in one go, and he throws in Halley's Comet for no good reason either, and the whole thing just becomes a big convoluted mess. Mm. It's like Mm. I've said it before on this podcast, you need a simple idea at the heart of your story, at the heart of your plot. And you can complicate the plot around your simple idea, but there must be a simple idea taking the viewer through from A to B that they mm. can follow. Yeah. And the trouble yeah. with Attack of the Cybermen is, it's, instead of having one big idea, one simple idea, it's got so many ideas that none of them really take the centre stage and you can't work out what's going on. You can, if you can't work out what's going on, mm. you don't know who you're rooting for. You might no. have a big arrow pointing at you know, one set of characters saying these are the good guys and another set of characters saying these are the bad guys. But unless you can really understand the motivations behind the characters and by understanding the motivations you can understand what's at stake in the story you can't engage with it and attack of the cybermen is a story that you just cannot engage with mm-hmm. you you can enjoy it as a purely visceral physical experience you can put attack of the cybermen on and enjoy the acting and enjoy the dialogue and enjoy the action and enjoy the location filming and all these other things but unless you can engage with it that's going to be a hollow and empty experience Mm -hmm. and then we'll leave you with a sour taste at the end i seem to be blathering on again no 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 it's right i mean this is are we back to the old argument about um what's the one type of fiction that gets bogged down with continuity and tries to you know apply itself to lots of different stories it's typical fan fiction isn't it and yeah. this is what ha- this is a, this is a lesson learned as to what happens when fan fiction gets involved with the real series yeah it just yeah. doesn't it does not work because the other things of note about attack of the cyber well, insofar as i'm concerned are that it's basically a remake of Resurrection of the Daleks. You have uh, modern-day Earth, and you have somewhere else, somewhere else, mm-hmm. and you have two plots going on with two sets of characters in either location, and they don't really ever get to properly interact with one another, so that by the time you get to the end of the story, and this was like it's famously said, Rula Lenska guest stars with Peter Davison in Resurrection of the Daleks, 
and the two characters never meet. That's his main guest star. He never yeah. gets to meet her. <laughs> and this feels exactly the same way. Mm. You know, by the time you get to the end of this story, Eric Sayward's written in a load of characters that he can kill off in diverse and interesting ways. But you get to the end of the story and you don't, you know, you don't feel that they've all been in the same story together with one another. No, no, it's, it's, yeah, there is no story as such. There is no circle. There's a, there should mm. be a circle of, of sorts. Yeah, yeah. Um, all stories should have some kind of an ellipse, which it, yeah. this doesn't have. It doesn't. So stuff happens. And that's yeah. what you can say. What happens in Attack of the Clones? Stuff St- happens. Stuff happens. people die. And people die. Yes, that's what Attack of the Cybermen is. Yeah. I, I said to you, though, that the last time I watched Attack of the Cybermen, my uh, four-year-old joined me, I'm afraid, of all the episodes to join me. And at the end, I said, well, what, what bit did you, what, what did you think of that? And she said, why was the man's hands bleeding? And that's that's all she said. Oh, and that's what she took from it. That's what she remembered. Mm, so why is this not in last place? That's what I want to know. Well, Mark, actually Lee and Mark both voted it relatively well. But Mark voted his third favourite. Oh, right. But you know what? It's a funny old season, isn't it? Because I don't think anything stands out as particularly good in season no. 22. And to be honest, time lash apart, I don't think anything stands out as particularly bad either. I, it's almost, I felt like I had to vote on the merits of the ideas rather than the programme itself. Mm. That's how I felt. I, I thought, how do I distinguish between these? And and it was the ones I voted highest were the ones with the best ideas, I thought. Yeah, this kind of, it's kind of almost feels like there's one level of television making going on in this season and each of the stories is attacking it from a different angle. But they've all got... All the stories have got the same level of invention. Mm. They've all pretty much got the same level of getting things right and getting things wrong. It's just how that mix sits on the screen, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's good Um, things and bad things in all the stories. It's it's certainly a series of, uh, you know, uh, of uh, variety between them. It's funny, actually. There's variety and sameness in across the entire season. It's weird. Yeah, it's kind (laughs) of. It's probably one of Doctor Who's oddest collection of stories. It's very, very difficult to talk about. Mm, I have to say. There's very definitely a theme going on, and obviously we've talked about this, everybody's talked about this before. You know, Caves of Androzani had been on the previous year, and this was Eric Sayward doing basically six remakes of the Caves of Androzani, mm. uh, you know, as near as he could. Mm. You know, mm. it's got that, that, that was the thing about Caves of Androzani, gritty and downbeat and visceral and violent and you know it's okay for Doctor Do Doctor Who to do that once in a while. Doctor Do, where's Lee? Is he not laughing his ass off there? <laughs> it's okay for Doctor Do to who that once in a while. He's, uh, but... he's very muted tonight, huh, doesn't he? Yeah, he doesn't seem to like the microphone he's, tonight. He's looking at me and smiling. Oh, is he? Yeah. Tell him that's not terribly good radio. <laughs> so, it's okay to do Caves of Androzani once in a season, but you do it six times on the drop. Which is essentially what we've got here, to mm. a greater or lesser extent, and it doesn't work. It's, it's six stories, each of which leaves a bad taste in the mouth afterwards for one reason or another. 
absolutely. And I think my voting was entirely based upon how much of a bad taste I was left with, <laughs> to be fair. It's like MasterChef in reverse. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and Lee got anything more to say about Attack of the Cybermen? Yeah, Cybermen were good. Yeah. And Ooh, that's that. Something weird's gone home. Oh, what's happened? Oh, it's right. I've accidentally clicked something on my Audacity, and now uh, I'm still recording, but I just can't listen to myself. Oh, how odd. Yeah, I've got... Oh, well, that was weird. That was silly. I didn't mean to do that. I meant to click back onto the emails. Uh, you're getting but, a squiggle still. Yeah, sorry. I've interrupted Lee telling me the, the Cybermen are good. Obviously, oh, yeah, I hate it, the Cybermen, it, but... It was one line. Oh, was it? Yeah, Cybermen were good. Yeah, but were they? Yes. <laughs> yes, they were to a 14-year-old. But, um, yeah, yeah. You've got to take some positive things from the season. That's what we're trying to do. That's one of the positives. I like the Cybermen in this. I like their design, even though it's looked upon now as being a bit rubbish. There was a, there were a few slightly overweight so Cybermen in it, which, you know, I've got to say, being an overweight man, well, that was that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, no, they, they were fine. They just did their Cyberman thing of the 80s, didn't they? And as a kid, I kind of enjoyed that part of it, but the rest of it was I had a problem with, really. Uh, and it didn't make any sense to me, even as a kid. It still doesn't now, I don't think. No, I, I have to say I'm still not 100% on the story at all. Yeah. Say story with inverted commas. Should we uh, move on? Yes. Maybe please. have another email. Maybe two, actually, and then do another couple of stories. Yep. Um, Richard Hogarth says, Hey, guys. Um, loving the retrospective feel of the show this year, but sprinkled with some irreverent but truly funny episodes that have made me have funny looks on, uh, from onlookers on the way to work. He's talking about the podcast. Uh, yeah, he's obviously listening to us on the bus or the train and, uh, well. He says, how do you guys feel about Neil Cross and Neil Gaiman both saying they are returning to the show? I'm a bit mixed. I think Cross is a brilliant addition to the show and I love both his eps episodes. Whereas Gaiman, I don't really care about because of the way he reacted after Nightmare in Silver, saying that he was too busy to write the episode, and after hearing your thoughts, this might have happened. I am upset that a fan thinks that way about this show. Nightmare is officially up there with Fear Her as my worst episodes of the new series. Seriously, guys, you're doing an amazing job. I love this podcast, and if I had a bad day or a bad week, knowing you guys are there taking the piss out of JR always elevates my mood. Oh, that's my mood that's just been unelevated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks very much for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, the, he was right. I mean, I, I didn't know that much about Neil Gaiman. I knew that he had um, an incredible reputation. I'd liked what I'd seen of, of the stuff that he'd written. I've never read any Neil Gaiman. Um, I knew of a Sandman comic before anything else. Um, so when his story came up, I, I I think I was more excited about the, the fact that an author of a certain standing was being involved with Doctor Who. That's why I was excited. And then obviously I, I watched the episode and thought it was the best thing ever. Um, Doctor's Wife you're talking about. Yes, Doctor's mm. Wife. And then, of course, you think, wow, if he can write stuff of that standard, and then that's... Just think what he can do with the Cybermen. Yeah, absolutely. And there were elements of that. But, I mean, what what is the general 
word on how Neil Gaiman reacted. I mean, is it a case of he has reached a certain level of writing where everything becomes just a job? Is that is that what it is? I think it's... Well, um, I say I'm not really entirely sure how he reacted, but the impression I get is that The Doctor's Wife was written for Series 5, remember? But didn't go... Um, didn't go before the cameras until series six, mm. so there was lots and lots of time to get that exactly right. Mm-hmm. And then with series seven, well, with Nightmare in Silver, well, it just felt like an unfinished draft, really, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, prior to that, Neil Gaiman had only ever written his own series, hadn't he? He'd never written an episode for a, another series that I'm aware of. Um, he'd written um, an episode of Babylon 5. Oh, had he? Oh, poor man. Yeah, and in fact, the year he wrote an episode of Babylon 5, I think it's Babylon 5, I'm pretty sure it is. I think you're right. I think yeah. I remember reading it and thinking, oh dear. But the, um, that year, his episode was the only episode that wasn't written by Straczynski. Mm. So it's like 22 episodes by Straczynski and one by Neil Gaiman. Mm, mm. So even that, whatever you think of Babylon 5, the fact that he was the only guest writer for a series of that size, yeah. and when I say size, I mean physical size, for that whole series, kind of already elevates him into a kind of a place, doesn't it? It does. It does. It's like the Tarantino episode of ER. It's, um, it's that same... Yeah, it's got that kind of feel about it. Mm. So, I don't know. I, Neil Gaiman's stuff is excellent, but Neil Gaiman is a master of his own universe, evidently. This is what I'm thinking, yeah. Mm. yeah. And I think The Doctor's Wife is successful because as a Doctor Who fan, he's bringing enough of Doctor Who into a Neil Gaiman universe. Because, you know, that episode is worlds apart from most other Doctor Who mm, in mm. the kind of milieu, the kind of setting. Mm. So, and that feels like it's got a few characters from Doctor Who in a Neil Gaiman universe, whereas Nightmare in Silver feels like it's got a Neil Gaiman universe and a Doctor Who universe colliding. And, you know, they're just... You know, sometimes, sometimes when things meet, they marry. And sometimes when things meet, they parry. And this was a case of them parrying. It would have worked as um, a comic strip um, or a graphic novel. This is, I, I imagine Neil Gaiman writing this and seeing visually these things going on and, uh, and then handing over the script. Possibly, I think a lot ended up on the cutting room floor as well about the background of the Empire and things, um, inside source. But uh, he probably just looked at it and thought, hang on a minute, I wouldn't have lit it like that. I wouldn't have filmed it like that. And, you know, I don't... Th- it's simple as that. He's a very creative person, very visual. When you look at the Sandman stuff, and um, when he's writing it, he was obviously thinking more visually, maybe than plot way. I well, know. I don't think it's just the visuals that we talked about this when we reviewed the episode. But I don't think the story stands up either. No, no the the way, um, yeah. Well, we don't really want to talk about it now, anyway, do we? But. Let's have another email then and yeah, move back yeah, on we to some more of season 22. We know where we stand on Nightmare on Silver. Um, this is from the Reverend Captain Hollow Porro. Open parentheses, Mrs. Close parentheses. Ah, there you all are. I was pondering <laughs> today 
I was pondering today, what if the 50th anniversary special had have been, was to have been, Eccleston, Tennant and Smith, with Eccleston agreeing to just one studio day of filming, meaning he would be able to appear as the first Doctor did in The Three Doctors. Hey, and who knows, he might. He could then say, so you are what I've become, a spiv and a fop. We already know that you've redecorated <laughs> I don't like it line is going to be in the special. What other classic lines would you like to see remixed in the 50th special? Also, I wonder how many people had it is time, but the moment has been prepared for as a Facebook status when the new Doctor was announced. Zoe Ball even said it, I notice. Anyway, as I've not dropped any innuendos this email, I'd better go to my room, Sonic in hand, and a copy of the Sontaran's Helmets, and think of some for next time. Ta-ta for now. Uh, I don't even know what he means at the end there, no, and no, no. I don't think I want to. <laughs> he asks, actually, here, let's throw this out to the listeners, because I've just brought this on you and you've not had time to think of it. Mm. Uh, if you're listening and you're anywhere near an email and you've got time to think about this, what classic lines from Doctor Who of old, of yore, would you like to see in the 50th anniversary special either straight up or else changed in some way, like a, so you're what I've become, a spiv and a fop. Throw us some, throw us some examples. Email at blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. I know what Dan Barrett will want. No, don't go there. (laughs) Spack off, that's what he'll want. Oh, yeah. Right, I will, uh, tell you what the next story up for discussion is and the story that we voted oh this is interesting this is going to shock a lot of people I think this is entirely my fault (laughs) (laughs) I think people have been listening to me far too much on this podcast Mm. the story we voted fourth best well would you like to guess Revelation yes I think most people would think of that as their favourite of the season, if not, well, and their favourite of the entire Colin Baker years, but you all know what my thoughts on Revelation of the Daleks are. Mm. And it turns out that apart from Lee, you all thought so too. And actually, Lee might well think so now, because Lee apparently did his voting as a 14-year-old. Hmm. <laughs> yes, he went. Is he coming back to the microphone? Yeah, I'll do ask him about Hang this. on. Yes, what do you want to know? Are you just sort of sitting there watching or something? It's one microphone, and you're doing very well without me. Okay. So, what would you like to know? Why you voted as a 14-year-old, knowing that you're going to have to come on and talk Ooh. about it as a 46-year-old? Oh, you swine. <laughs> um, very good. Uh, I don't know. It's it's a weird one. I, I feel a bit... This season has completely confused me. <laughs> I find it very hard to talk about, um, because there's so much stuff that was not... It was just, just there's so much rubbish in it, and um, but there's also a lot of potential brilliant stuff as well. And also, I watched it at a time when I was just wavering on whether to keep watching it or not. So I kind of mm. enjoyed it, and I didn't, and I enjoyed it, and I didn't. It's hard. And then I've rewatched them since on B Sky B in the '90s, and I kind of, you know, shot them down in flames. And then I rewatched them again, and thought they were, certain ones were good. And then came on here, and then you kind of gave me a different viewpoint. And I went back and thought, mm, yeah, you're right. Revelation isn't the thing that I imagined it to be. Uh, so I did rethink it. But I just thought, well, no, hang on. I'll just go with my gut instinct. Why? Why? You know, I I liked Revelation for a long, long time. And it was only a, a few reasons why. It was a head and shoulders 
visually in some places uh, for me personally better than the others um, there were some great shots you know just just silly things like great shots in the snow seeing him wearing his cape Perry getting on well with him for a change um, and then there's some really down moments of course with the DJ um, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and the nasty stuff going on and that ridiculous actress who couldn't act but um, I, I don't know I just I just thought it was it was better than the other ones to watch and also it reminded me of Blake Seven. For some reason, I could imagine that being a very Blake Seven episode, and I was pretty I much know into what Blake you mean. Seven. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I kind of went with that, and that's why it's always stuck with me. So I have to kind of go with my instinct. I think I enjoy watching that one, possibly more than the other ones, which is why I voted it up. Top. It's. it's I'm not going to go over old ground and say all the things I usually say, but uh, it's very. It's very on-the-surface revelation of the Daleks, isn't it? Mm. It's perhaps the shallowest story of the season in that it's even worse than Attack of the Sidemen. Attack of the Sidemen is too many ideas in search of a story. Revelation of the Daleks is all about making an impression. And there's... Yeah, it's no depth to it. Mm. It's just kind of... It's all about, oh, this will shock the viewers... Oh, this will make the viewers sit up and take notice. You know, the DJ is a perfect example of that. This is a DJ playing records to dead people. You know, why does a DJ play records to dead people? So that you can have the script editor or the writer saying to his producer, Oh, I know what this story needs. A DJ playing records to dead people. It makes no sense. It's just... It's... It's just a shallow idea. It makes no sense. It's just there to provoke a reaction. Do you know if Douglas Adams had got a hold of that idea, he could have made some really yeah, he'd have made stuff something with it. it. Yeah, maybe. I can't and I think that's Douglas, that's. I couldn't see Douglas Adams doing that idea. I yeah. think he would have spun it entirely differently. But yes, mm. I get what you're saying. But that yes. Maybe go. he thought he was being funny. Maybe Eric Sayward thought he was being funny with the DJ yeah, playing play records to dead people. people. Yeah, he probably thought he was making a very ironic comment. But, you know, you only make a ironic comments about something. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, you can't make an ironic comment in isolation. The only thing I kind of remembered from that story from watching it the first time was the girl seeing her father turned into a Dalek. Mm. And it was that body shock thing again. Yeah. So once again, uh, Attack of the Cybermen, you take away bleeding hands, and from this you take away the fact that somebody sees their father turn into a Dalek. Yeah. And she doesn't just find out that he's been turned into a Dalek. She sees him. She sees his face and recognises it, and that's pretty and damn, what's, and what's damn that horrible. And what's that all about again, apart from provoking a reaction? Mm. Glass Dalek was cool. A, a cool idea, but it was only glass so that you could see inside it, Yes, yeah. I think. But, I mean, why are they, you know, the rest of the story is about Davros using dead people as, you know, vaguely in the same, well, it's food stuff, isn't it? So why has he got one in a Dalek? It's a bit of a silly B-movie, really, isn't it? Which is kind well, of what I, I get off on those. <laughs> yeah, but the trouble is it's pretending to be deep and meaningful. Oh, it no, has, it's, def it's definitely shallow. Yeah, but it has pretensions. I See, I don't mind shallow. I don't mind B-movies. I love B-movies, as long as you do them as B-movies. I don't like. I don't mind shallow, as long as you're not pretending to be something else. But there's a real pretentiousness about Revelation of the Daleks. It's, you know, like I said just now, it's throwing all these ideas out in order to provoke reactions, but without having 
I was going to say without having the courage of your convictions, but without having any convictions to be courageous about. It's like courage without any conviction. Hmm. I know what you mean. It's even like, even the bit at the end, which any other <laughs> any other writer would have done with a bit of subtlety. It would have been a beautiful moment, like when he, uh, when the character falls over and his wig falls off. I mean, that's... You know what he was trying to do, and again, he's trying to provoke a response, isn't he? But it's it's like it's like laying on butter with a I don't know with a bulldozer. I suppose. Oh yeah, right? it's like throwing those characters have been thrown in, yeah, so that you know that can happen at the end, mm-hmm. rather than the characters being there because that's what those characters would be. Mm, it's mm. not that it's not that the end is the natural result of those characters being who they are. It's like the characters are who they are, so they can get to that end result. Mm, mm. <sighs> it's the whole light, light and shade thing. I think I quite like the idea. I like the idea of it being set in this place with just lots of loads of dead bodies. I even kind of like the idea of the DJ playing music to the dead people. But it's like we've said before is. If it's treated in the right way, you, if you're going to have that amount of darkness, you've got to have light to go with it. So it needs to be almost um, a satire, and it doesn't quite—it doesn't well, it doesn't quite—it doesn't manage to do that. There's no satire whatsoever. No, it wants to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it's aiming for. But it's like that's you know that idea was done mm. in Soylent Green, right? Yeah, and Silent Green is not a satire because that idea uh, it's too serious mm. and it's too beyond what you can imagine might be possible. Mm. Mm. For example, you can't imagine that you know the human race would ever get to the stage where it starts recycling its own dead bodies as food. Yeah, right. So. You can't treat it. You can only treat something as satire if it's something that you can imagine really happening because that's what satire comes out of. Mm. You have to extend an idea to a logical conclusion and then you you have to send that up to try and point out that taking that idea to its logical conclusion would be a bad thing, mm. right? But you, ca- I can't, you know, I might be talking out of my ass here, but I cannot imagine you know, that idea being a logical conclusion of anything. Yes, overcrowding, and yes, you know, resources on the planet Earth running out, Mm. but I can't imagine that kind of recycling ever being the solution to that. (laughs) So it's either either you take that idea as the solution and make that the satire in and of itself and then treat it seriously, and, you know, it has pretensions again towards that, but that's not what it does. You know, you can't then throw Davros in and say, well, it's all about the Daleks, because then you've undermined your own idea. Mm. So Mm. the whole thing is undermining itself left, right and centre. And, well, like I say, it's there to A, provoke a response. And And also, where on earth does the Doctor sit in all this? I mean, what's what's lost in all of this is the fact that the Doctor should be the character that takes us through these stories. He's the one that should be reassuring the children that everything's going to be right in the end and it isn't it's dark 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 and the doctor is treated like just another character there's no lead characters whatsoever well he's not even treated like any of the other characters because all the other characters at least impact on the story in one way or another the doctor Mm. has no impact on revelation of the daleks whatsoever except for the fact that he's there when it happens yeah Mm. 
That is not a great way, you know. I think it was Mark was saying last week, the actors who played the Doctor didn't feel like they were really the Doctor until they'd appeared with the Daleks. Well, this is like a bit like paying lip service to that. Okay, you can be in a Dalek story, but it's not that the Daleks are in your story, you're in theirs. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the Daleks actually are relevant in all this as well. So it's like Doctor Who and the revelation of the Daleks, the Doctors are relevant, the Daleks are irrelevant. What's it really all about? Mm. i tell you what, the best character in the whole thing is the bounty hunter. He's the most interesting thing in it. He probably is. There are some... Well, this is the thing about Revelation. It is an entertaining watch, and the characters mm. are engaging to a level... But in a shallow kind of a way, there's a lot of good actors in there, mm. but there's a lot of shallow dialogue that really wants to be Robert Holmes-type dialogue, but doesn't really quite get what Robert Holmes does. Yeah. Who was because, the chap who, who's the chap who plays the bounty hunter? Because he's a great actor. Oh, he's really great. It's... I mean, he was lost on that part. Oh, oh God, I can't remember his name. No, no, he's great. I've got a program guide in front of me. Maybe if I can find the right page. Yes, yes. I could. William Gaunt, isn't it? I William even... Gaunt. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even need the program guide. My bad memory came good in the <laughs> nick of time. I mean, why Alexi Sale was wasted as well. I mean, well, we all know what happens when they put comedians in there. Yeah, same thing happened in the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, didn't it? Right, let's move on. Yes. Uh, the story we voted third best. Yeah. Oh, does Lee want to come back Lee, and say more? Lee was just saying about Lee Evans. No, no, I just said Lee Evans did a good job. I think he was yeah, the only yeah, comedian yeah. that managed to do it. Oh, yeah, and uh, Donna Noble. <laughs> of course. Well, it depends whether you consider... Yeah, well, this is an argument for another time. Do you she consider was an actress these people... before she was a comedian, wasn't she? Yeah. 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 That's an argument for another time. Yeah. Um... Kendall. The two doctors. That was the story we voted our third favourite. Yeah, yeah. Actually, this is surprising me now, but actually, there's not much to choose between this one and the one that came above it. Right. Okay. In fact, we've got three quite highly marked and three quite lowly marked, so we're into the quite highly marked ones now. The two mm. doctors. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, the temptation was there to vote it really high purely on the inclusion of. Patrick Trout and Fraser Hines but I can't I mean I kind of did that with the three doctors in the, for the 10th season but I think that deserved to be up the top because it was an absolute romp but this just this just isn't isn't it it's it's a mishmash of bad decisions and odd decisions well mm. not odd, I, well not odd I suppose from the viewpoint that they want to do a f- bit of filming in another country but odd in as much as the story doesn't benefit at all from being set in Spain. It's... i tell you what it reminds me of. It's Robert Holmes unbound. It's Robert Holmes without any restriction or any preconceived notions of what he has to write. So many times Robert Holmes has been told, right, do the introduction for this character. Do the introduction for this character. You know, he, he introduces the third Doctor, Joe Grant, Sarah Jane Smith, the Master... All these characters, all introduced in Robert Holmes stories, and then other times they'd be told, right, we need you to do one that's a historical, you know, uh, the Time Warrior. 
all the time Robert Holmes is being told, we need you to do this, we need you to do that. And then when he's not told we need you to do anything, when he's just told, go away and write a Doctor Who story, he comes back with something that is satirical and that is completely different from everything around it. There is nothing <laughs> remotely like Carnival of Monsters in the entire John Pertwee era, apart from Carnival of Monsters. Mm. And the one thing that does come closest is probably Terror of the Autons, and that's also Robert Holmes. And The Two Doctors, to me, is 15 years on, Robert Holmes unbound once again. You know, Eric Sayward <laughs> just says to him, we want you back next year, just write a story. Mm. And I think he says, throw the Sontarans in and throw the second Doctor in. And instead of, you know, when he was working for Barry Letts, before he'd been script editor, before he had... You know, before he was in a position whereof he was able to do his own thing, he would kowtow to what they wanted of him to a greater degree when they did want something of him. Here, they say, throw the second Doctor in, and he says, well, okay, I'll turn him into an Androgum for an episode. And if they say, throw in the Sontarans, he makes them <laughs> comedy sidekicks, you know? Yeah. Mm. So it's like, it's like Robert Holmes taking the piss out of the people who've asked him to write the story almost mm, yeah I think he did the thing with the Andrew Gun purely to have it starting to affect Colin Baker's Doctor I think the whole idea was that it was the same person yeah sorry did I say what did I say I said Colin Baker yeah, well, Patrick Trout was changed and it would start to affect Colin Baker Yes, that's what I meant. Um, sorry, we're having a little conversation on our own. Yeah, perhaps Lee ought to sit up to the microphone when something like that happens. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, 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 I feel that that's why that, that decision was made with the story. Um, but, it, yeah, it just doesn't gel, does it? There's a lot of nice elements, as there always are in Robert Holmes, but they just don't seem to sit together very well. Mm. They're not very well realised. Um, One of the complaints that was made was that the story was really written for New Orleans and they ended up filming it in Seville. But I don't think that affects the story negatively. It looks beautiful and while it might not feel like the most natural place for that story to happen, you know, when did, whenever did any of the alien invasions of the home counties feel like they could only have happened in the home counties? I know, and we don't question, it's like City of Death, we don't question where, why is that set in Paris? Because that could be set anywhere as well, couldn't it? Well, yeah, apart from Paris, is actually called the City of Death. It's one of its nicknames. Oh, is it? Oh, I didn't know that. Also, yeah. it's um, the, the Louvre's there, and you've got um, the Mona Lisa, which gives a good reason for, you know, something mm. to start. It's a good bit of writing stuff to play with fair dues indeed yes you didn't pick a very good example there you should <laughs> I didn't. have picked Amsterdam instead I'll go in Amsterdam yeah you know um, Ark of Infinity yeah that, yeah that that was pointless but I don't see any reason not to do it there either <laughs> no no why, I mean yeah law of average is somewhere that the TARDIS is going to land in different countries mm. and different stories are going to happen in different places because you um, know the temptation if you're going to go abroad is to write something that's specific to that particular place yeah mm. which I don't think is always necessarily what you ought to you know set yourself as a target for doing mm. Mm. Now, see, what I'm saying is I don't see Seville as being a problem in this story whereas obviously some people probably do I just think you asked the question why. 
if they've suddenly got the option of going abroad and doing one story abroad, you'd think they would take advantage of that to its its greatest benefit, which you know, which is why it works in City of Death because you have got those little elements from the country. So, well, the thing about it is, this story was written to be somewhere else, and then that place proved too expensive, and this was what they could afford in the meantime. Oh, too late wasn't to rewrite them. Wasn't it to do with El Dorado? Was that why they did it? Pardon? Was it El Dorado? Weren't they filming another series in the same place, and that's why it was picked? Um, maybe I'm wrong. Can't say I've ever heard. <laughs> no, no, I might have just. I think you I just made just, that up on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. Well-known series. Spain watch. Um, the voting on this, Lee actually, uh, is it Lee? Hang on, I'm just looking now. No, 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 oh, it's Mark. Mark picked this as his favourite and Mark's not here. Lee picked oh. it as his second least favourite. Oh, really? I did. <laughs> Do you know one interesting thing, though? Robert, I think it's Robert Holmes himself complained about Oscar Bochaby's death scene, saying the director buggered it up turned it into a comedy moment when it should have been a moment of um, you know Ethos. yeah exactly yeah. has he gone again he, is, he was like, about to say something and he went, he went off the boil again I see he's like a simmering kettle he's not quite getting there hang on he's I'm just trying to work out what to say um, yeah uh, well I voted it bottom didn't I quite quite low uh, it was second a, bottom. Second bottom it was the yeah. um, it was a, a terrible waste of um, server land <laughs> Um, the gorgeous Jacqueline Pierce and a terrible waste of Patrick Troughton and Jamie um, and I can't forgive it for that really uh, Robert, Robert Holmes or not this uh, ranks alongside the Space Pirates for me Really? I find this in terms of pure entertainment the most entertaining story of the year mm, mm. and I voted it second because well you know, I really struggled with the voting on this series, to be perfectly frank, this season. I know this is really shallow, but I find the most entertaining thing about it, um, Nicola Bryant, I have to say. <laughs> I'm being honest here. just in the one episode. Or all yes, the way through, true. maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of her being hulked around it's like a piece her. of meat. Yes. And here I am treating her like a piece of meat. But, um, yeah... It could have been Lee's right. It could have been so much better. You didn't I mean, feel got, the same way about Jamie then. Well, some people might. Some people might. I thought he did very well considering the age difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and what actually, what is quite um, admirable, but for the story, is how you do accept the second Doctor and, and Jamie, considering the age differences and, and uh, you know the physical differences. You just they kind of slot back into the roles after all this time, and that's quite incredible, really. I think, yeah, I think the Doctor and Jamie, when they were playing those parts, yes, they were acting, obviously they were acting, uh, but I think what they acted was, I think there's a lightness about it. It wasn't, they didn't do anything terribly deep when they were doctor, doing Doctor Who. They mm. just did something that was enough of a remove from themselves. It was almost like they were throwing themselves into that character. And I don't mean that they were playing themselves, but you know what I mean? I mean, they were projecting something of themselves onto those characters. Mm. So that when you come back and play them again, even all those years later, it's not a case of finding the character, it's a case of finding the aspect of yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. All right, we'll move on, shall we? Yeah, go on then. A couple more emails. Um, 
Graham Boyd says, uh, Graham Boyd says, did any of you watch the prom? Of course you did. Therefore, you saw the BBC deliver the biggest sush JR moment by taking a bit of time out to celebrate the Raston Warrior robot. <laughs> Anywho, the point I was going to make was how blooming good did some of that 80s Who music sound when performed with an actual proper orchestra and not someone collapsing on a Casio. If you didn't see it, it was the swimming scene from the end of Curse of Fenric, which was immeasurably improved. I think what I'm trying to say is I'm not fussed about upscaling image quality, but if they announced that they were going back and re-recording the entire score, I would happily go out and repurchase my collection of 80s Doctor Who DVDs. How about you guys? Would you be up for petitioning Anti Beeb? I would. If I had another lifetime, as I always say, if I had a few days spare, I would love to rescore an old Doctor Who. If anyone has no, a no, tape no, 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 you're score, missing the point. No, 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 no. But I'm just saying, I would oh, like okay. personally to take the opportunity. But, um, but how I, would you like to hear those Doctor Who stories from the 80s instead of having a rather thin and reedy? Um, synthesizer score with a, you know, an orchestration of the same music, but an orchestration of it over the top. I would be curious to hear whether it affects or to experience whether it changes the story. I think Certainly. it would. Yeah, I think it, I, I think it would actually, um, and it would be it'd be great. I mean, I, I did actually like the scoring for Curse of Henrik so much I bought the CD. But you're right. It is. It's got that suffers from the '80s uh, weedy sound. Mm. And uh, if Murray Gold got hold of it and just rescored the lot with his big booms and crashes, imagine it would just sound so much better. And I think it'd pull you along better, and it'd be more emotional. It may even improve a lot of the stories <laughs> from uh, yeah. Sylvester McCoy's era. Who knows? I think it would. I think it would. Anyway, Mark Whiteley's written in. And he has said, regarding season 25, um, just listen to this episode, and I think a books podcast is a great idea. If you want any ideas for one to read, I can highly recommend Time Worm Exodus by Terence Dix. You don't have to read the whole series, just jump in on this one. The Hitler Hair Doctor dialogue is some of my favourite in Doctor Who history. Have either of you two read Time Worm Exodus? You haven't. I have, Simon, yeah. but... You yeah. haven't, you, Lee? Yeah, I've got it, yeah. Yeah. Got it at home. Got them all at home. Um, uh, yes, I, I, I remember... Hang on, let me just think. The first one was the one with the set in Mesopotamia. Well, I'll tell you what, No, 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 there's a reason for saying this. Uh, because I remember not being impressed with that at all. And I, oh, I nearly wow. stopped. And then I read his his German one, and I just thought, hey, this is what it should be all about. Bit of a bit of a romp, bit of fun. And uh, it was it was a really good really good book i don't know whether it is actually any good the book because it's been so long since i read it but i enjoyed it when i read it well i read it more recently and i enjoyed it and the reason i was going to stop you was because we're going to do a podcast on our memories of reading the ones that we did in a few weeks and you should have saved it for then i've got more to say don't worry <laughs> okay well anyway so we will we'll leave it on that note and Sometime between now and the anniversary, we will try and do a podcast on the new adventures and yeah, the past Doctor adventures and the missing adventures and all that sort of stuff. We'll do a podcast on the Wilderness Years books. I think I, I, I'll have a look through. I've picked up various books from... I don't know whether I've got any new adventures or not, actually. Have I? Is Just War, Lance Parkin, is that one? Uh, yeah. Is that, is, that, is that a good one to... There. 
I haven't the faintest so. idea, so just get on and read it. Okay, I'll read it. And as soon as you've read that, we'll do the podcast. Okay. All right, there's a deal. Um, okay, let's do a couple more stories, and then one more email for the end. Uh, we have... Oh, the story we voted in second place. Well, this surprised me. Actually, not all that much thinking about it. The story we voted in second place was Vengeance on Varos. Mm, okay. Uh, possibly the strongest story idea of the whole series, I think. Mm, maybe, yeah. Oh, you um, voted top. I voted at top, did I? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think probably because I thought it deserved it um, for uh, that that connection between the original idea and how the thing turned out. That that that's, that seems to be the, the 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 links that are missing in most of these stories is that between the initial idea and how it actually turns out on screen and how you experience yeah consistency. Lise, um, I just don't like the idea. You don't. Which is not to say I don't think it's a good idea. I just don't like the idea. I don't think it sits well in Doctor Who. Because mm. the trouble with Vengeance on Varus is, as soon as it starts, you can only go in one direction. There's no room for that story to go anywhere else, to do anything else, to be anything else. As soon as they land on the planet where torture is entertainment... You can only then have 90 minutes of torture being entertainment. There's no room for anything else. Mm. And, I don't, and as much as uh, Philip Martin puts in the Greek chorus to commentate on the action, well, in fact, actually, there's two layers of that. I'm not even sure he intended that. But, of course, Seal is one layer of Greek chorus because yeah. he's not local either. No. So he's commentating on the action. And then you've got the actual two viewers at home commentating on the action as well which is a bit like being meta on top of being meta and I'm not sure if it doesn't wipe itself out somewhere along the way has that been um is that that element you know the viewers watching it on television has that been used before previously in a dot two story because that, um, that's quite original as far as I'm aware well yeah I think it is original it almost harkens back in a way to the way the savages starts which is a lost story from 1965, six, early 66, yeah. I think yeah. it might be. Uh, that kind of starts with a whole planet watching the Doctor's adventures. Oh, does it? Yeah, which is a very weird, very strange thing. Yeah. And until it's find, found, we'll never quite know quite how... Well, I suppose you could listen to the audio and get most... But you know what I'm saying, it is like... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not the most original idea in the world ever. It, there's a reason it's called a Greek chorus, after all. Mm. So, it kind you know, of preempts the um, uh, the longest game. You know, it kind of preempts the the Big Brother thing. The long game, yeah. Well, the, longest game. Yeah, oh, oh dear, sorry. Bad Wolf. Yes. The thing is, it's like it's like throwing a clever idea in. Not quite for the sake of it, but it doesn't ameliorate what else is going on in that story. It doesn't make it all right. It's like saying, it's like saying racism is bad, kids, and then being a racist to demonstrate just how racist, how bad racism is. It doesn't, it doesn't make it right doing. Um, or it's like looking at child pornography in order to prove that child pornography is bad, you know, which is. Yeah. an excuse that has been brought up in court, doesn't make it right to look at it. You know it's bad without looking at it. So in Doctor Who, it's all very well to say, 
you know, violence as entertainment is a bad thing, so don't show us 90 minutes worth of it. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't need to see it to get the message. Mm. You know, you could have had that message at the end of a story in which that becomes something that the story works towards, but if you start off with that as the message, where else do you go for your 90 minutes? The best thing about Vengeance on Varos is Nabil Shaban as Sil. What a yes. great character. Yes, absolutely. And it's littered with good ideas and interesting ideas, but it is just so stuck into its rut. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Of course, you've got the, the bit with the, <laughs> the doctor throwing the bloke into the acid bath. Um, well, I don't that... have a problem with that. Mm. Mm. The thing in that scene that that is the problematic thing is not the fact that he throws him in the acid bath, although, uh, you know, ostensibly it's an accident. It's the fact that he decides to make a quip about it afterwards. You know, that's the kind of thing you get in James Bond movie, you know, where there's lots of casual sadism and casual sexism and all that kind of stuff. But you don't get that kind of stuff in Doctor Who, so why would you have that kind of dialogue in Doctor Who? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and why exactly did did Perry get turned into a bird? I mean, it was visually stunning. Well, yeah, that's... Go on, sorry, I cut you off there. No, I was going to say, I just I love the makeup and I love the way it looked and... It was great. But, it looks um, so 80s. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. But there you go. And mm. actually, he reuses that idea again in his following story, Philip Martin, doesn't he? Because, well, not just the fact that it's Perry who gets changed, but changing people is also one of the themes of Mind Warp in Trial of the Time Lord. Of course, He wants yeah. to take the brain out of one body and put it in another body, which is ostensibly the same sort of thing he's doing yeah, here. Yes, he's got a thing against Perry, isn't he? Mm. It's a little bit like Attack of the Cybermen, where it's throw all these ideas in, but they're all such horrible, hideous ideas. It's again, it's like saying there's no light and shade in this story, there's just shade. I like Martin Jarvis in it, I have to say. I do like, and I was actually reminded of it, um, now what is the, is it Jubilee, the audio adventure that Martin Jarvis does? And that, it reminded me very much of that, a very similar character, I think. Oh, Jubilee, yeah, it's kind of a similar sort of idea as well, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Mm, I've not heard it, but by all accounts, I think it does it better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lee going to come to the yeah. microphone and talk about Vengeance and Varos? I this will. has got to be the least natural podcast we've ever done. The um, Well, mentioning very quickly Jubilee, I would recommend every single person who's a Doctor Who fan go and buy it right now. It's a brilliant story. Uh, it's brilliantly acted, and it's fantastic. There's fantastic twists and turns all the way through it. And I was uh, I was breathless, but I had to listen to it all in one go. It's great, great writing. Anyway, um, but yes, it does kind of owe a bit of a debt to Vengeance on Varos, I think. Still, certainly the best thing out of the whole thing. Uh, Jarvis is pretty good as well. Wasn't Jason Connery in it? Yeah, it was awful. It was awful. Yeah, he was green, wasn't he, as an actor? Mm. Um, I think his dad just said, "Hey, there's a job. Do that." Um, you know, Sean Connery can't act though, anyway. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. But um... he has presence. <laughs> that's the difference. Sean Connery can't act, yeah. but he has more charisma than any man should be allowed to have. Whereas his son can't act and has no charisma. Yeah, Sean Connery's definitely got presence to to stop a good film from looking good. Um, yeah, now it's uh, the reason why I've stuck it up top is just simply because I think when I watched it, I was reading um, Shakespeare at the time, 
um I, I was young i know but i was still reading it and um i had this kind of it, it, it isn't shakespearean but it has elements of it you said about the greek chorus and things i just mm. imagined it being on stage and i could that's a very shakespearean idea yes well yeah uh but i imagine watching it on stage and i think that's kind of why i enjoyed it because it's, it's more like a stage production than anything else um and it, and also the idea, the Orwellian idea, was something that I was quite into at the time as well. I just think I just read 1984, so it kind of r- rang true with me as well on that score. So, yeah, I kind of enjoyed it for all those reasons, and it stuck with me. But there are, you know, plenty of faults, and it's got that nasty Sayward aspect to it, um, yeah. as always. It's got a good cliffhanger, unlike... Oh, you're swapping over again. Yeah. <laughs> it's got. It's like Simon's default tonight and Lee's guest, something like that. <laughs> I keep offering the mic and he kind of goes, no, "You're all right." He's going, "Okay." He's editing yeah. himself. Yeah. Well, it's nice that he at least brought some enthusiasm to the podcast tonight. <laughs> um, I was going to say the cliffhanger. I didn't like it at the time, and actually, I don't like it now for entirely different reasons. But it is probably the best cliffhanger of the season. Mm. Which one's that again? Sorry, go on. It's the Doctor being dead in the desert of his imagination that they've programmed the environment to um, make him think he's a part of. And yes. then the director, on-screen director, saying cut. Yeah, yeah. Very it's good. a very meta cliffhanger. Mm. Mm. And at the time I didn't like it because I thought, well, no, he's not dead. And I also thought to myself, well, no, and it's the on-screen director who said, cut, we know this is all in his imagination, you're not fooling me. And obviously, you know, at that age, I think I was about 18 when this was on, I just thought, oh, give me a break. And now the reason I don't like it is perhaps for the same reason that I do still find the Deadly Assassin Part 3 cliffhanger slightly problematical, Mm. in that... You don't show, you know, your cliffhanger shouldn't be the Doctor dead. Yeah, no, the no. cliffhanger should be, you know, the moment where peril is about to strike, not the moment after it has struck. Mm, mm, yeah, that's what that's what Mary Winehouse was talking about, and why she was misunderstood. You know, that cliffhanger in the Deadly Assassin. I think we did actually say this recently, but the point is, to all intents and purposes, it looks like that man has drowned the Doctor. Mm. Now, the cli- the kids who are watching should be left on the moment just before peril strikes, so they're thinking, how does the Doctor get out of that? Mm. Not the moment after peril strikes, because then you know he's not got out of it, and mm. that is not a good place to leave your, you know, under-12s audience for seven whole days. Yeah. Mm. So I think it's problematical for that reason, and also I think this story is perhaps just a bit too meta. I think with this amount of... It's not like Happiness Patrol, where it's kind of metaphorical, but the the elements of the story are all part of the same metaphor, as it were. Mm. In this, it's all meta. It's like every different level of the storytelling is meta. And And what it adds up to is somebody being really clever at the typewriter and really not engaging with his idea in either a practical or a truly emotional sense. Mm. There's no sense of emotional engagement in the story because of all the meta. I do. I like the design and I like the way it was filmed, though. I do think it was fairly well realised. Mm. 
Just go back to what I was saying. You know, you have to have both an emotional and an intellectual connection with your subject. And in this, it's like there's no emotional connection, apart from, again, the shock factor. Yeah. Mm, mm. Which has got nothing to do with the meta, again. (laughs) Sorry, I cut you off there, but I just wanted to get that out. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. Um, Yeah, well, when I think about the story, though, I do think about how it... It, the story was realised and it did give a good impression of this being this horrible, very dark, um, very brown environment. <laughs> I just remember it being very brown, but very rusty, almost old. And um, it, it was all like torture chambers, wasn't it? So, yeah, yeah. But I take your point. Can I just say, well, this this whole season, um, I really like the credit sequence on the Colin Baker era. I really like it. I know essentially it was the Peter Davison credits with Colin Baker's face and a bit of colour added, but I thought it worked really well. Oh, it's, yeah, really? I thought it was, I didn't like the Davison one anyway because I thought it had taken the magic out of Doctor Who. And this was taking the magic out of Doctor Who and throwing some hundreds and thousands at it for no apparent reason. (laughs) No. No, I, yeah, I mean, I could, I wasn't so naive as to not look and think, oh yeah, they've just laid another layer over the top of the old credits, but uh, I still thought it worked well. Yeah. Um, should we go on to our top story? Go on then. Which is, well, there's only one story left, so what must it be? Uh, Mark of the Rani. Yes. Why have we voted this top collectively? Do you think? I don't know. I didn't. I know you didn't, so I'm asking you for an opinion on why you think collectively we might have. Perry in a bodice. (laughs) I know, that's awful. That's (laughs) awful. The worst costume she gets in a series of really bad costumes. It's diabolical. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I'm confused as to why this is top. I think possibly you may have all voted it top because it's a bit of fun. I'm the only person who actually voted it top. Oh, really? I'm saying why did we collectively give it the highest vote? Okay, because maybe because it's, it's uh, the only story of the six that's remotely different enough to stand out, perhaps. Yeah, and it isn't dark and nasty, and it's all a bit of fluff. Well, no, it does have some of the same ideas as some of the other stories have. There is, you know, Revelation of the Daleks, and Time Lash, and the Two Doctors, and Vengeance on Varos, and of Attack of the Cybermen, all contain ideas about... The body horror thing that Simon was saying, they all contain ideas about changing physically what it means to be human, and so does Time and the Rani, uh, so does Time and the Rani, so does Mark of the Rani, <laughs> to a certain degree, but in a slightly different way that's less about being nasty for the sake of being nasty, less about causing an effect for the sake of the effect, as it is about exploring perhaps what it means a little bit more. So I think Mark of the Rani stands out. I don't think there are some bits in it that are awful, but I think the music in this is stands out from the music in all the other stories. Mm. I think the location filming stands out, the characters, the dialogue. It all stands out. It all sets Mark of the Rani apart. So even though it shares some of the same ideas, it treats them in such a different way. Mm. And it puts the Doctor at the centre of it, unlike Almost none of the other stories puts the Doctor of the centre of it and has him behaving like Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And um, also putting the, ma- the the Master and the Rani together, which is, uh, I suppose, a bit of a fan, fan thing. Not really, respects. because the Rani had never been in it before. 
So it wasn't like people were hankering oh, after. Oh no, yeah, I'm getting mixed. Oh god, how on earth did I get a mix, the uh, chronology mixed up there? You're you silly, silly boy. I know, I know, I know. As there, I was thinking that was her second appearance, and of course it wasn't. I'm not yeah. sure what the law on this is, but I don't know if there was ever a point at which Pip and Jane Baker were going to write Mark of the Rani with just the Rani and not the Master, and were asked to add the Master in. But I suspect. Probably from the start, they were asked to include the Master, just so that they could give Anthony Ainley a story in that series. Mm. But I wonder, because does the Master really play second fiddle to the Rani? Mm, he does, he does. But there is a reason for that, and not a fictional reason, a non-fictional reason, and that is, of course, we've seen the Master, we've seen what he does, we've seen what he has to offer... If you're going to have this other character, then you have to give her dominion over the Master, otherwise he dominates too much and you don't get to see her potential, her range. Oh, I see, I see. It puts yeah. her, you get uh, an idea of where she stands in status compared to the Master. So yeah, she's up there, well, so she immediately well, becomes a threat. Her, yeah. her potential. Mm, mm. You wouldn't get that if, if they were equals, properly equals, or if he was dominant then you would see everything you saw about her, you would see uh, through the reflection of what you thought about him. Whereas this way around, what you see of her is what she is. And you see a different, you see a different version of him because you see him reflected off her mm. rather than the other way around. Is, I, can't, I can't remember exactly. Was the, is the Doctor aware of the Rani? Does he know of her in the same way as he knows of the Master? Um, offhand, I can't say yes, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's. I find it fascinating how uh, these days, every time there's going to be a new female character in Doctor Who, everyone goes, "The Rani is the Rani," and mm. it's it's strange how um, Lee, you're a fan of the Rani, aren't you? And I, I just find it strange because she didn't strike me as that strong a character. But um, I think people fell in love. I think people are in love with the idea of the character because mm. she's the only female Time Lord, really, yeah. apart yeah. from obviously Romana, but really, apart from Romana, she's the only female Time Lord. So the only female Time Lord with an antagonistic kind mm. of an interest factor. So if you're going to have a female Time Lord in it, of course I've forgotten Susan as well, but you know this is what I'm saying, non-companion female Time Lord. If you're going to have a non-companion female Time Lord in Doctor Who... You know, obviously, that's going to attract the interest. And imagine what they could do with it these days. Th yeah, I think they could, actually. And I think you could make it more um, ambiguous as to her intent. Because she, I think, when you look at her against the Master, the Master's a raven loon in this, and he just wants to kill things and whatever. And uh, she is arguing with the Doctor about stuff as well, uh, on a kind of biological sense. And she's intelligent and... I think nowadays somebody like that would be perfect for Stephen Moffat to write. Well, she um, argues with him on an intellectual level, which is something that hadn't been happening with the Master anymore for years, isn't no, it? No, exactly. Yeah, exactly. He was. Um, <laughs> Anthony Ailey was definitely wasted in this. I mean, I've said it before about the Scarecrow scene, which I think is one of the worst scenes in Doctor Who. Complete waste of time. But, yeah, um, but it looks great. Yeah. And no, that's, no, it looks and great in the comic. And for your, well, no, but for your six-year-olds who are watching, your eight-year-olds who are watching, that's great. Mm, maybe. <laughs> you could have something in there for everybody. Yeah, I mean, the doctor with the dirty face and, and pure blonde hair, that's good enough, isn't it, for an eight-year-old to laugh at? 
he looks just like a clown then. No, it was, um, I don't know. I, I, I understand why you, it's up there. Um, it's definitely fun. And I enjoy, I actually enjoy watching Mark of the Rani. I just get annoyed about the misuse of the master. And the fact that Rani is actually pretty good, I think. Um, Simon says that her character isn't that great. And I think that, that is due to the fault of the two episode she was in plus dimensions in time which totally spoiled it all um mm -hmm. yeah but if she was brought back i reckon that she could be used damn well in fact i, st I still think the idea in time in the rani has wings i just i think it's a bit misunderstood because it's a bit of a b-movie idea and i don't mind b-movie ideas i like them uh, casting was great i mean she uh, she she looked great i have to say I guess I couldn't quite take her in the uh, dressed up in the rags, but <laughs> but actually yeah. she did it really well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I don't and remember a lot about the story. If I'm honest, I don't remember a lot about the story of a lot of these these ones in this. Well, series. some of it again doesn't sit well. All the stuff mm. about the trees in the second episode <clears throat> is a bit out of nowhere. That's, to me, more there for no particularly good reason than the stuff with uh, the master that Lee complains about. Mm. I can understand why the master's stuff is there. You needed to have the master in. You needed to make him into the character that the, that the seven-year-olds could vaguely remember from when they were six, so they wanted mm. to be scary. So he appears as a scarecrow. I can see that being scary for the seven- and the eight-year-olds. And then your master's done. So, so where are we with these stories? In as much as, what 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 story does the series start off with again? I'm trying to remember. Attack of the Cybermen. Attack of the Cybermen. So, how are we seeing the Doctor and Perry's relationship? Obviously, in Twin Dilemma, that last we knew, he was being a bit of a nutter. Is it is well, that kind of swept under the carpet? Is, well, no, because he carries on a bit that way, doesn't he? Mm. The trouble is, Eric Sayward hates the fact that Colin Baker's been cast as the sixth Doctor, he sees it as being for no very good reason because, you know, of this kind of urban legend almost about, you know, John Nathan Turner and Colin Baker were at the same wedding and John Nathan Turner saw how much charisma Colin Baker had and said, right, that's the guy we need for the Doctor because he can entertain party <laughs> guests. Well, no, it wasn't because he could entertain party guests. It was because A, he had charisma and B, he could act. Mm, you mm. know, it wasn't just the one thing, but I think Eric Sayward seems to have fixated on that one thing, and therefore Colin Baker as the Doctor becomes a character he doesn't like. So after the twin dilemma goes out, and everybody gets this idea of an antagonistic relationship between the two, instead of mellowing it out, Eric Sayward never puts them right, and, you know, the rest of the writers are writing them relatively antagonistic. Mm. Now, it sort of comes and goes through the course of the series. Mark of the Rani feels like it should be the last story in the series because that's the story where, you know, the Doctor and Perry are most comfortable with one another. Yeah. Mm. So it's almost like it's, it's self-defeating. The program almost self-destructs. Oh, it does, it does. It absolutely does. Mm. Uh, but it's then... My microphone's I, just self-destructed. Oh, well, I think that's a subject for another time anyway. Yeah. Shall we move on to the last email and call it a night? Go on, then. Okay, because, uh, well, this, this is from Doc Hume again, but this came today, and as I mentioned that we were recording 
on season 22. He came back with a bit on season 22 as well. So I'll do the bit on season 22 first, since we're wrapping up on season 22. He says, considering that it was an 80 season, it had more good points and fewer shockers than I'd expect. Though the two doctors is probably the only one I'd willingly rewatch. Colin Baker was on pretty good form throughout, between the war crime, which was the twin dilemma, and the coming car crash, which would be Trial of the Time Lord. Such a pity that everything suffered from Perry's whiny accent. And he's not wrong there. It's, mm. oh, that drives me up the wall. Uh, he says, a brief thought on each of the six stories. Attack of the Sidemen. The stuff in the London sewers was good, and nicely reminiscent of the invasion, but all the palaver on Telos was bobbins. On Vengeance on Varos, the only thing he's got to say is a good new alien in Sill. On Mark of the Rani, Kato Mara was the best thing in it. On The Two Doctors, wonderful to see Patrick Troughton and Jamie again. Oh, he says one by the actor's name and one by the character's name. That's lazy writing, Mr. Whom. Sort yourself out. <laughs> he says, couldn't see the point of travelling to Seville. The unforgettable line where the Doctor says, I'm just going to take a scout around the back. <laughs> he says, I've never noticed that. Sorry. <laughs> he says you've got to really make an effort though to make Jacqueline Pierce come over as dull as she seems here. Oh, his yeah. comment on Time Lash is Dear God <laughs> And in and that then, you can you realise how why we've struggled to do this episode. It has been a struggle, I have to say. I don't know. I think well I think as well, if Mark had been here, it would have overrun by a lot more. Our yeah. uh, 60-minute template is really, really an embarrassing understatement these days, isn't it? <laughs> um, revelation of the Daleks. Cheap Dalek props. Who the hell decided that a Dalek should be coloured white and gold on a white set? Uh, oh, the only accent worse <laughs> than Perry's was Jenny Thomas in as Tassambika. I expected her every next line to be, Milk spoiled over Mrs. Bridges. <laughs> Right, I'm not quite sure I get that reference, but uh, I'm sure it's... Uh, Somebody somewhere does. Mm. Yeah. I expect most everybody does, and we're just embarrassing ourselves. Yeah. Anyway, he sums that up by saying, I'm sure that if I'd been into Doctor Who in the 80s, I'd remember it more fondly. And looking back, I'd more easily forgive it its flaws as I forgive the flaws of the 70s. Though, to be fair, I genuinely think that there were far more flaws in the 80s than the 70s. Flaws in plotting, scripting, casting, characterisation and acting. So that's Doc Whom, who, uh, let's put it mildly, not the biggest fan of season 22. Do you know what I can quite honestly say that I have fonder memories of Doctor Who magazine than the actual TV series in that era because you had the wonderful right, yeah the wonderful John Ridgway artwork and um uh, sorry who was it was Alan Barnes writing the story Voyager and all that no idea I didn't write though I didn't read those oh some, somebody out there is shouting at the at the their headphones in public people out there are shouting at their headphones in public anyway and it's got nothing to do with whether we got the name of the artist right or wrong yeah no no, no i know i've got the artist right i always get the artist right but it's the writer i can't remember but it was oh it was yeah great. you know what i mean probably steve parkhouse <clears throat> get it right now anyway stock whom finally he um He uh, gives us a bit of response to the Season 25 podcast from last week. Mm. He says, The Season 25 podcast was remarkable for JR saying two things I was unable to disagree with. (laughs) It's so rude. I don't know why I still continue to read his emails out. It's outrageous. 
He's worse than you three. He says, Firstly, his opinion that Ace never said anything believable struck a chord with me, as I've only recently finished listening to Death Comes to Time, where Ace starts training to become a Time Lord. Ace? A Time Lord? Aren't the Gallifreyans all white kids anyway? But the only time she was written memorably was with the no-coloured sign in Remembrance of the Daleks. They restricted Ace to a silent expression of her feelings on seeing the sign, which worked well. Instead of what we might have expected, Ace tearing down the sign and confronting the landlady with, You is like so racist, bilge bag. Racism <laughs> is like so unwicked in it. <laughs> <laughs> he says, the most hilarious thing about street fighting Hooli Ace is that she turns out to come from Perivale. To watch Survival, you'd think it was some sink estate in Toxteth, and complaining about the white kids in Perivale is like being in Peking and complaining about the Chinese kids. Ace is just a lower middle class Vicky Pollard. Secondly, he says, being unable to disagree with me on the following point, it's about time that someone nailed this nonsense about the Happiness Patrol being a satire on the Thatcher years. Apart from the ruler being a hatchet-faced woman, there's no comparison at all. Anyone who imagines that Margaret Thatcher spent her premiership insisting that people be happy either didn't live through it or is just scraping the bottom of the barrel in an attempt to portray 80s Doctor Who as excitingly radical. That's what I think whenever anyone involved in the show at the time brings up this Thatcher comparison. They're just trying to make the dreariest period of the show's history appear to have been dangerously edgy, and to make themselves appear to have been serious artistes at the forefront of activist theatre. <laughs> and actually, I have to say, she reminded me more of the Central American dictatorships, I think. Yeah. You know, conform or else. With Thatcher. I, I, I like, yeah, I mean, you sometimes you... Um you twist your memory to suit how you... And I like the idea that, that Doctor Who is anti-Thatch. That's that's me. Well, well, I think we'd all like to think that Doctor Who is anti-Thatch. Yeah. And on that political bombshell... <laughs> yes, the Blue Box podcast is a left-wing podcast. Yes. So, are we going to recommend that everybody goes out and buys a copy of Time Worm Exodus and reads it over the next few weeks so that when we talk about it, we'll all be on the same page? Should we all make an attempt to actually read that one? Oh, what time are we all going to read the same book? Yeah, let's, because some of us have read other books as well, so we can talk about those in more general terms. Mm. But if we all try and read this book in the next two or three weeks, say, and come back to this subject in maybe three or four episodes' time, mm. we can talk more specifically about that one. Okay. So, there you go. That's a challenge for the listener as well. If you've got a copy are we of ripping off an, Are we ripping off another podcast again? Are we, gonna, are we having a go at the Doctor Who book club now? Are we? I don't know. Isn't there a... There is, yeah. Lee's nodding at me. Oh, there is yeah. another podcast that does exactly what we're going to do. <laughs> oh, well, it wasn't... It was only because Mark Whiteley suggested that I actually tell the listeners what's coming up yeah. over the next few weeks so no, that they can... Them. Uh, prepare by watching the same things, or in this case, reading the same things as we're going to be talking about. No, I'm messing around. I'm messing and around. I told him, uh, no way am I going to do that, and here we are on the very next podcast and I'm doing it. I mean, we could just suggest, you know, to uh, read anything from that period. There's a lot out there. Um, no, the point is they'd have to read what we're going to talk about. Yeah, okay, we can do that. It is another podcast, but we can do that. I think so, your, your initial idea of, of just generally talking about uh, the books throughout the wilderness years, uh, you know, kind of picking up a few, a few things, a few points, good ones, bad ones, yes, whatever. Just I'm, the general feeling of it. 
Yes, but my point is that none of us have read it. This is the thing. Somebody suggested, I don't, maybe you didn't hear this then. Somebody suggested we do a podcast on the new Avengers and I said we haven't read enough of them to do that. And then since then, uh, or possibly at the time, I suggested, well, instead of doing one on the new Avengers as a whole, Mm -hmm. why don't we do one on the new Avengers we have read and just give some thoughts and impressions of those. And now I'm saying, if we all read the same book between now and then, as well as being able to talk about some of the other books we've read Mm -hmm. in vague terms, our memories of reading them, we can talk about that one specifically and talk about some of the specific things it does. Mm. Do you know if there's a copy online anywhere? Oh, no, have you not got it anymore? I probably have got it, yeah, somewhere. I'll have to search around. Okay, I'll look my copy out. (laughs) And I think Mark's got it, and we'll try and make sure that Simon gets a copy. Excellent. I think it's fairly cheap on eBay anyway, because it's one of the early ones, and they were uh, published in bigger numbers. Yeah, they were. And it's quite a quick one to read as well. It's very easy. Yeah, it's still when they're fairly, fairly short, so that's not too bad. So we'll all try and do that. And another thing we should all do is watch the TV movie so we can do a podcast about Paul McGann before we get to the anniversary. We'll try and do that fairly soon. Okie dokie, you can do that. Right, so I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. (laughs) 